Hey everyone, this is Gans, and welcome to another episode of the C Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of everything going on in European technology. My guest today is Jacob Haida, CEO of Acurex. Acurex is a London-based company working in a platform that brings patients and healthcare teams together. The Acurex story is fascinating. After struggling with their initial idea right out of Entrepreneur First, they pivoted captured over 90% of the primary care market in the UK with their solution and raised around from some of the best funds in Europe, including Atomico and Local Globe. During this conversation, we cover absolutely everything. Why healthcare is a communication industry and the underlying incentives that drive it, the non-obvious impact of COVID-19 for health tech, the early years of Acurex going through YEF and the pivot into messaging, how they optimize hiring for diversity, their new culture, and their product development process. Jacob and I had this chat a couple of months ago during the early phases of the lockdown, but it is more relevant than ever. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Okay, awesome. So let's 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 get started. So for people who don't know you, tell me a bit more about Acurex and what you guys are building. So we're a communication platform for healthcare, and we think that healthcare is a communication industry. Um, it wasn't that way 50 years ago. It was very much a knowledge industry uh, because it was delivered by individuals. Now it's delivered by teams, and they need to be able to communicate. So we're building a platform on which everyone involved in a patient's care, and, and that's our vision. Our vision is that everyone involved in a patient's care can communicate with each other. How do you discover that insight? Because it's... It's sort of one of those things hidden in plain sight, but no one is actually talking about it or was talking about that. Like, how do you discover that insight? So when we started as a company four years ago, we were entirely focused on antibiotic uh, prescribing. So there's a huge problem that we haven't developed new antibiotics, uh, new classes of antibiotics for 40 years. We rely on them for all of modern medicine, um, and if we overuse them, they become less effective. So we started as a company working that. About 18 months in, we, we learned that that just wasn't going to be a business because it's too much of an externality. The right incentives weren't in place. So we pivoted, and we, we, we went and just spent three months like living inside one GP practice, one primary care clinic, and built all sorts of prototypes, you know, how they rate a staff, how they understand their demand, how they do knowledge management, how they collect data from patients, how they message their patients, a whole load of different things. We spent days, you know, shadowing uh, GP appointments, shadowing doctor appointments, shadowing the reception team, speaking to patients, looking at the practice accounts and what they were spending money on, looking at the admin workflows, all these different things. And we made loads of improvements there. of them were completely unscalable, but what we learned was that the underlying theme of everything we were trying to solve was communication, and actually, healthcare is just really, really messy. You you know, someone has a referral, and they need to get it moved to this other hospital, and they've got a prescription, but they can't get it until they've got this test done, but actually, they're already coming in for an appointment next week, so they can get the test done then. There's all this sort of mess that humans are really good at, handling that mess they're they're very good at problem solving they just need really lightweight and quite generic ways of communicating and that's proven out in every other sector you know how we use email and whatsapp and in particular the phone to like solve problems solve logistics so that that's how we we uncovered it is really you know spending a lot of time just at the front line both in that three months and then 
afterwards, you know, even still everyone in our team has to spend time each quarter at a GP practice. We've got a lot of user researchers in our team. We've got clinicians in our team. We have one of our users join a whole team call every single morning to talk about, you know, the front line and how they're using our software. So it's a really core cool part of an, our, our DNA is like being exposed to the front line. You, you mentioned you started uh, about four years ago, right? And you started yeah. on Entrepreneur First. Let's talk a bit about the, the program. How was uh, me and your co-founder? Uh, was there something you didn't really expect about those few months you were there? Yeah, so I, I went into Entrepreneur First with a healthcare background. So I knew I wanted to build a business in healthcare. And I knew that that problem of antibiotic resistance really interested me just as a huge problem facing health systems. Uh, Lawrence, my co-founder, he's come from software engineering in the oil and gas industry and really wanted to work on something with impact, use his technical skills to, to improve the society environment, these things. So we met there. And the beginning of Entrepreneur First is a bit like a sort of like awkward team dating or like a, you know, school disco where people are working with one person and they're like, should I keep working with them or work with someone else? And, the, the, the entrepreneur first team are actually really good at trying to, you know, if you're not working well together, break, break you up and get you working with someone else. Uh, now, luckily, Lawrence is the first person I worked with um, and we worked together from, I think it was the first week there and just really, really got on. And, and those are the two things that they try and optimize for an entrepreneur first. Of, are you happy and are you productive? And, you know, right since then, we, we've always been very, very happy and, and incredibly productive working together. So, so uh, we kept going. Um, the program was very good at providing sort of weekly accountability. You know, at the very early stages, we didn't have any customers or users we were accountable to. So as essentially like our only investor, having, you know, put in a you know, very early stage, you know, and very small amount of money into, into us getting off the ground, having that weekly accountability of like, what are you going to do this week? And then a week later, like, these are the things you said you're going to do. Did you do them? Um, that really helps us like drive momentum during the program. So you went through EF, uh, you started working on this antibiotic resistance problem. Uh, you figured out that the sort of incentives when there was too much for an externality, it sort of pivoted into what you guys are doing now, this platform from healthcare messaging and the core product, uh, healthcare communication and the core product is, is messaging. Do you think, is there like one counterintuitive insight or thing that makes the whole thing work? Something that you guys didn't think it was there, but now it sort of puts everything together? Oh, so, so many things we didn't expect. So our core product today, which is like embarrassingly simple, a doctor has a patient's record open, they type a message and they hit send and it goes to the patient's phone by SMS. Um, we discovered that because when we built our decision support for antibiotic prescribing, that was like the favorite moment for all our users. It was like witchcraft where they typed something and it went in their electronic health record system, which you know looks like it's you know, developed before the millennium, and went to their phone at the same time and went pink. It was like this revelation for them. So, so there was definitely something there that we'd see, you know, seen how much of a, an impact we could have. I think what that also really taught us, in particular, the pivot taught us, is like we just have to create like immediate delight and like really, really minimise the time to value. So, so when we you know went from sort of twenty GP practices using us to trying to make it into a self-service product, 
what we had to really optimize for is can someone who's never heard about us before hit our website and within five minutes be using us to message their, their patients and so minimizing that time to value i'd say was another like a key insight and it might not sound like that much of an insight in the general tech scene but i think in healthcare in particular pretty much all procurement is very very top down and the decision makers on the users and so that's where you end up with these legacy systems that tick a lot of procurement check boxes but aren't actually useful or, or usable for frontline software or indeed for patients so that's partly why we've had this you know, enormous focus on on um, user research and just building something that building something that users need you, you discussed or you mentioned publicly you're very sort of public about this whole time to value thing you also compared in an interview like AcuraX to microsoft excel what you said you you build products in a way that have like no uh, quote-unquote fixed use cases and the frontline workers can just innovate on, on how they use it this reminds me of this like product building heuristic of high ceiling and low floors. So low floors is it to learn, high ceiling is extremely difficult to, to master, or mm. I don't want to say difficult to master, but really they get more interesting as you go. Do you think about that framework when you talk about like product development or what drives like those product decisions? Yes, yeah, so, so I, I never heard it described actually as low floors, but high ceilings, but um, I, I like that analogy. Um, I think of high ceilings in more in a sense of opportunity. We don't know what our users can can do with our software. You know, we we hear anecdotes. The way we think about it, sort of day to day, when we're building products, is not trying to build rigid workflows. So we don't build a workflow for making a referral or for um, reminding someone about an appointment. We've got a workflow for sending a message, and we'll make it easier to do those things. You know, we'll have templates and we'll we'll have features that let you do those use cases. But we don't want to ever say this is for you know one thing and, and one thing only because that's when start that's when people stop innovating and i think you know some of the most rewarding experiences are like when you hear users come up with super innovative ways so you know one we had the other day was in you know in the middle of the pandemic practices who are who are telling some patients to come in they speak to patients on the phone or over video they say you know do come into the surgery we want to examine you they've put up signs in their car park saying, wait in your car and we'll send you a text message when we're ready. And then just come straight into, you know, the text message will say, come straight into roommate. Now we never in a million years would have thought of that because like we, we, we just wouldn't have, but by having a really generic product, people have been able to do that. People have been able to, you know, with our video calling, send the link, forward the link on to a family member who can interpret for them if they don't, you know, don't speak English and the appointments, you know, with the doctors in English, all these sorts of things we, we hadn't originally accounted for. And that's, yeah, incredibly rewarding seeing people in the way. This is, I guess, only possible because you, you work like really close to, to your customers, essentially. I also heard this anecdote that you have like this physician's like desk uh, set up in your office with a slow internet connection and small computer. Tell me a bit more why you think like being this obsessed with customers is important and, and how you're implementing that across the, across the team, I guess. So in healthcare, there's a, there's a, well, there's a few challenges. One, you can't, you have to serve a hundred percent. You know, if you're building an e-commerce platform or a new social network, whatever, you can say, right, users on this old device or users with all these you know, weird admin permissions on their computer, they, you know, they can't 
uh, they can't use it because actually we're not interested in that. They've got some weird firewall settings, like they're not our target users. But for us, we get like great you know, delight from obsessing over the edge cases of you know that one user on Internet Explorer 11 who like can't get it to work on like really, really make it work there because it means, you know, when those, those people hit it in the future that will work. So it's quite a different mentality from, you know, traditional like Pareto prioritization of like, let's obsess over that, that sort of long tail of users and usability. One of the other big challenges in healthcare is, like with probably a lot of enterprise sectors, is, is that you've got the, you know, clinicians and other staff on the front line who are very aware of the problems, but don't necessarily know how to go about building a solution and you've got technologists who know how to go and build all sorts of solutions but don't don't see the problems and so where that goes really wrong is well two ways one you just don't build any solutions because people can't see them or you have technologists like trying to force things you know down the health system's throat with you know packed with buzzwords like ai and blockchain or packed with all the sorts of smoke and mirrors and bells and whistles but that doesn't actually help anyone because all you have you only have to go to a, a doctor's surgery and sit in the waiting room and and hear, you know, ask people you know, what they're coming in for. And you quite quickly realize that, you know, a chatbot isn't going to help someone if they're isolated and lonely and they really need to talk to, talk to someone or, or, or things like that. So I think it really helps us bridge that divide between you know, the reality on the front line, which is like people are still using pages and sending faxes and sending most documents by post. The reality between that and and you know, what we're doing today, we can we can never forget that. So yeah, we do have a kind of uncomfortable, clunky old desk in the corner of the office where we where we like to test software. Even really small things you get out when you test it in that way. So you learn things like if somebody's sitting there as the patient, what are they seeing on the screen at the same time as the doctor's using our software? Or if you're trying to have a conversation with a patient and you've got a sensor at the same time, like how much cognitive load is there to, to be able to do that action whilst also talking to the patient? And that's quite different to how a lot of you know, UX testing and things you know, nor- normally happens. We try and you know, really, really simulate that environment. The best way, though, is going out to GP practices. Obviously, we're not doing that at the moment because of COVID, but it is going out to GP practices and, and seeing them in their own environment. Um, and so we, we do that a lot as well. And I guess the, the desk also works as a sort of visible uh, or tangible indicator of what's important for the team, right? That's right there in the office. So you mentioned COVID-19. Let's, which I guess is in everyone's mind right now. So let's let's step a bit into that. You, you discussed briefly the healthcare as a knowledge industry versus communication industry, how that sort of changed over the past, let's say, 50 years, for instance. But for the patient, the, the journey has been the sort of healthcare journey whenever you go to a doctor or to a primary care, the, the journey has been mostly the same for the, for the past few decades and technology mm-hmm. and innovation have had little impact, or, or I think. So the patient, they develop a symptom, the patient visits a doctor office, the doctor diagnoses that disease or whatever, largely from outward symptoms. Then the doctor sends the patient home. It's usually under like a watch and wait thing and the patient either recovers or that gets escalated. Then like that in-person sort of diagnostic slash treatment gets like, it's repeated every time. How do you think like uh, COVID-19 is changing that, that cycle? So I think that the need for 
like more streamlined ways to communicate. So everything from like asynchronous ways to you know not having to be face to face to you know being able to easily get specialist advice. That's been there for for, for years, even for decades. But the healthcare system is very driven by risk rather than opportunity. So with a new and intervention, it's quite rare to, you know, for the system to say, oh, you know, what's possible here? It's much more likely the system to say, you know, what are all the ways this could go wrong? What's happened with COVID is that the, the, that opportunity has become risks, right? If we don't have a way to see patients remotely or for them to not have to come in to pick up this document or whatever, then we're putting ourselves at risk, we're putting our patients at, at risk um, from infection. And so we need, we need to embrace technology rapidly. So what has actually been you know, great for us is that we haven't had to go and build many things specifically for COVID. We're just taking the things that we were already working on or you know, planning on working on and done them a lot faster. And you know, they've been received you know, in order of magnitude faster than, than if we would have done them outside of COVID. I think that's, that's sort of one big impact. The other thing is just to nuance you know, the, the, the typical interaction. So I, I definitely agree in that that model of consultations and things is, you know, has definitely been around for decades. That's particularly for acute uh, presentations and people who have some new symptoms. The majority of what the primary care is dealing with are people with ongoing medical conditions requiring checkups or, you know, where that issue hasn't quite been resolved or that, you know, complex patients with you know, multiple health problems or and that's only increasing as you know people live longer and, and we get better at detecting disease and things like that. And the healthcare system hasn't adapted to find ways of managing that. And, and why that why technology is particularly important there is in the UK, uh, GP appointments are 10 minutes. In other countries, you know, some countries it's 15 minutes. But you know, in general, you're talking about 10 to 15 minutes you know, a number of times a year there is only so much healthcare that can take place in that time and so I think one of the you know one of the paradigm shifts that we're trying to drive is rather than just relying on those times how can we use those times to sort of like steer and navigate and leverage the, the healthcare that's going on but actually healthcare happens every day it's like the decisions someone makes around their lifestyle or the risks they take around uh, exercising how they take their medication you know whether they worry about things or not and so having really easy ways for patients to quickly ask a question over like asynchronous messaging without creating a lot more burden on the system i think those are some of the approaches where we can we can shift the current model the, the big challenge in shifting the current model is in pretty much every healthcare system around the world healthcare is at capacity and so there isn't much slack to try new things or to, to open up new ways of, of people accessing care people are just so worried that that will increase workload now actually when you talk to some innovators who have changed ways that patients can access them they found that the network load has decreased but a lot of people don't think about network load they think about you know oh there's this new thing i've got to do now but they don't necessarily see oh that saves me having all these appointments in, in six months time or something like that so i think that that will need to change for the, for the the model of how a lot of healthcare is going to change the other big thing that will need to change is in incentives in healthcare here is you know somewhere where the uk is actually a bit more advanced in that in in primary care uh, family doctors aren't paid for every appointment they're just paid for every patient they look after i um, mean you know, for the whole year but if you've got a model where you're paid for every appointment 
you're not incentivized to have, you know, more efficient ways of communicating, you know, can resolve this thing over a message rather than needing an appointment because it will reduce your income. Uh, we have that problem uh, with hospitals in the, in the UK here, that they are generally paid on an appointment that, and that's starting to change. But I think that's the other big piece that needs to change is the current model is very tied to, to how the system is reimbursed. Are you thinking about any ways of changing those incentives? Like from Acurex to the rest of the practices? Because it's, it's fairly hard to change incentives, I'd say. Yeah. So, well, in, as I say in, in every country, there is a, a realization that healthcare systems need to move, move towards what's called like value-based care or outcomes-based care, where, where rather than paying on activity, how much stuff you do, you're, you're paying on, on healthcare outcomes. Um, it's slow. It's been you know, talked about for years. I'd say in primary care here, we're in a very good position in that in the UK, there are good incentives around providing good, good care rather than activity. In hospitals in the UK, there is a big push to reduce hospital outpatient activity, so seeing a specialist. And so we're, we're trying to like ride and even lead that, that transformation. In other countries, it, it, it really just differs between countries. What we're hoping is that we can show some really stark improvements in the health system here and then be able to, to demonstrate those to other health systems and, and, and show some of that impact. But systems are starting to modernize. You know, I've seen, you know, I was looking at the, the German healthcare system the other day where you can now do 20% of your, your consultations remotely and still get reimbursed in the same way and, and things like that. So they are starting to, to um, update. When it comes to team building and culture, you have some fairly, not unique views, but you're very intentional in how you build a team, how you hire, how you run the operations. Let's, let's talk a bit about that. One of the things that I find uh, like very interesting is you're fairly against uh, consensus decision making. Why is that and how do you think about decision making? Well, I guess there's this. <laughs> Well, I'd say we're more against consensus decision-making in the, in the context of it becomes a massive barrier, aside from the team and the health system, if you know, things can't get done um, until things you know, get agreed. And that's only echoed at the team level. So I think as a team, it's really important to have a very high diversity of opinions. But if you, you know, are trying to optimise for pleasing all of them, you, you'll get nowhere. You'll disappoint everyone and waste a lot of time. So you've got to reach a decision uh, and then commit to it as a team where you know people are bitter and they run with it and we're very clear with the team when we try something new or somebody else in the team implements something new but like this is an experiment like the only thing we know with complete confidence is that it probably won't work but we've got to try it out to learn and so that that gives people a lot more comfort to try new things but it also means if something's you know if we try something new we, we don't have to you know keep it working uh, you know, just because we said we're, we're trying to you know, move to this new way of running teams or setting goals or whatever. We were very clear from the start that, that, that it is an experiment. So yeah, that, that's, that's part of you know, how we like to operate as a team. I'm happy to talk more about the team, team stuff. Yeah, I don't have so, particular questions about it. <laughs> you, well, you mentioned that having diversity of opinion was crucial for you guys. Why do you think building a diverse team is important? So every company is like, you know, diversity is good, it's 2020, you need to be diverse. Yeah, in another thing I'm going after, like, I'm, I'm going yeah, after yeah. the actual response, like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, no, I'm sure it's not a diversity and inclusion 
thing for you guys. Yes. So in healthcare, we are building for like the definition of diversity, right? You can't get more diverse than the patient population. And if anything, you know, that is massively skewed towards more vulnerable uh, groups. So that's both true of the population, also of uh, the patient population, also of staff. So healthcare workforce is incredibly diverse, even in, just in terms of gender. 70% of the workforce are female, 75% of decisions in healthcare made by women. So, you know, if we're, if we're not representing that in our team, the long and short of it is like, we're just going to make terrible products that aren't very user-friendly and, and don't solve real problems. Um, there's another side of it as well, which is, I want to come to work every day and have lunch with interesting people and chat to, you know, interesting people, you know, before a meeting starts and you've got different perspectives and who aren't all the same. And I've worked in workplaces before that are the complete opposite where, you know, most people there are, you know, close to a carbon, close to a carbon copy. And you don't get that same level of ideas, but it also means if you aren't one of those, you know, if you aren't a part of that carbon copy, you feel very out of place uh, and, you know, really good ideas get shut down and so we, we want to have have a place where actually we're bringing like the best and most creative and like wacky ideas and perspectives into into how, both the products we build but also how we run the team what processes have you put in place to make sure you optimize for diversity without leaving the other necessary stuff apart so we had in 2019 a big push on um, gender diversity in our team. So I think we started the year at about 20% women and ended at about 50%. And we did a whole range of stuff. So we made sure that at interviews, A, candidates never just had one stage of face-to-face -face interviews. So if they were particularly nervous on one day, they had another chance. Uh, B, that they were never... Uh, interviewed entirely by you know one gender and they had a you know, mixed panel across the interviews we published our employee handbook and tried to be really really transparent around our culture and how we support personal development and just like the day-to-day -day, like week-to-week month-to-month running of the team some of our team started uh, teaching at code first girls a great like coding boot camp for women we started just publishing more, I guess trying to make our culture a lot more authentic. We published more photos and blogs and things of the environment here. We um, put all our job adverts through like a gender decoder to make sure that they didn't have um, language or wording that was you know, particularly uh, appealing or not to certain um, genders. We lowered the job requirements on a lot of the like job adverts the the experience requirements on the adverts but we kept the same bar when reviewing applications and when um, reviewing you know when interviewing and things like that because what you know there's a load of evidence that says men will apply for something if they meet like three out of ten criteria and women if they meet like nine out of ten so by lowering the bar we try to you know get in basically just way more to make sure that our whole funnel was diverse so rather than you know doing anything different around how we select people it was all about making sure that all the applications that we were getting were, were really really diverse so yeah those were some of the things we did but it was a it was a real like team effort over over a lot of the years to do a lot of those things where do you see the company in, in 12 to 18 months and where do you see the healthcare industry in 12 to 18 months our big push at the moment is going beyond GP practice and primary care and getting adoption in 
hospitals and community providers like district nursing and physiotherapy services and pharmacies and things like that. So that's a, you know our big area of focus at the moment. So in, in 12 to 18 months, I would like to have shown our same bottom-up adoption that we did in, in primary care, where in you know, two years we've going, gone from zero to over 90% of the market. We'd like to show that same trajectory in hospitals and in, in these other providers. And then, you know, from a core, you know, core functionality point of view, we want all of those different people involved in a patient's care to be able to log in, look up a patient, and then message other people involved in their care. Um, the other thing that we're going, you know, in 12 to 18 months is you know, we want to be uh, launching and, and putting roots down in another country. And that might be somewhere like Canada, which is very similarly structured to the, the UK health system. Or it might be, you know, going to a less developed country where actually they don't have any existing health record systems and we leapfrog that and the communication record becomes the medical record. So that's something that really excites us and where, where we think we can potentially have you know, massive impacts, but we just, you know, we need to learn so much about, about those health systems and, and the, the user needs and the health needs on the ground. So that's, you know, some of what, you know, some of what we want to do as a, as a as a company, I think a lot of things won't change, you know, a commitment to user research, you know, having a really strong culture, you know, having a real drive to just ship products and not get sucked into press and PR or, you know, buzzwords or, you know, any, any of that stuff, ship products that work. That, that's not going to change. Um, in terms of the healthcare systems, I think we're at a really defining time now where decades of, I think a decade of digital transformation is going to happen over the next year. And so we want to not just ride that, but to actually enable and, and lead that change and, and bring a lot of solutions, um, like new solutions to the table and, and implement them. So I really hope that certainly in the UK health system in a year's time, if you go to the hospital, um, that doctor there will be able to look up your primary care GP record through us. And that means they'll be able to give much better care to you because they'll know what normal test results are for you and what operations you've had before and what medication you're on. Um, and then if they then need to talk to your primary care doctor, they'll be able to do that as well in two clicks. So I think some of those sorts of transformations to how information flows around the system, we're really excited to start to start rolling out in this country. Are there any other dynamics that COVID-19 will change than sort of the, the rest of the population isn't talking about? Because everyone's talking about, let's say, how telemedicine will rise. Are there anything that we, that don't work in the industry, are missing that you think will actually happen? That's a very good question. So, uh, yeah, I actually think that the video consultation part of what we're doing is like a, is actually a really small part of it. And whilst we've had amazing growth in things like being able to send documents to patients, being able to collect and get patients to message back and things like that, actually a lot more transformative in lots of cases than we did. I think so some of the non-obvious, sort of non-obvious impacts are, I think there's going to be, there's a big impact at the moment on all of the routine things that the healthcare system you know, was doing six months ago that has completely stopped, you know, managing people with diabetes, managing people with asthma, you know, uh, parents worried about their children bringing them in. Um, there's a big problem at the moment that, you know, that in lots of cases that capacity is, is there, but patients aren't, you know, seeking it or taking advantage of it because they, you know, want to, you know, either not put strain on the system or not expose themselves to risk. So I think there's going to be a lot of catching up, particularly around 
managing of chronic diseases coming. What are the other other sort of changes, unexpected changes we might see? There's none that jump to mind. I'll have more of a think. Unexpected changes. No, I think really it's just it's just rapidly, rapidly accelerating how you know people adopt software and people really being focused on the opportunities rather than rather than all the risks and it's it's what i think covid's really proven out is how and i don't think this is specific to healthcare but in times of a crisis very decentralized decision making it can be far more effective and, and faster than you know very command and control top-down decision making so we had you know, when we released our video consulting and then triage before appointments with covid we had three and a half thousand practices four weeks later we had double the number of practices nobody had told them to you know use us but people were like right we need a solution this thing's available we can set it up ourselves let's go and so i think i really hope that that level of kind of decentralized decision making and in particular innovation continues uh, beyond this rather than things just being you know centrally mandated i think that's a perfect note to end on uh where can people find you in, in case you want to find you yeah, so if you go to accurx.com, A-C-C-U-R-X.com, you can, I'm still embarrassed by our website, it's not great, but you can see uh, a bit, bit about what we do, but, you know, if you're in London and you're working for us, there's a careers page, um, there's lots of love from our users on Twitter, if you want to scroll, search Accurx and scroll through what they're saying, um, you, can, you can get a real feel of, of how they're using us. Okay, perfect. Awesome, Jacob. Thank you very much for your time. And, uh, Excited for this conversation. I hope it's the first of many. Um, Parlia.com, P-A-R-L-I-A.com. Hey, this is Gons again. If you enjoyed this episode of the CW Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeatTable.com. SeatTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. Ciao.